May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is Father John Zilstra. We welcome as our guest today His Excellency Carlo Maria Viganò, titular Archbishop of Ulpiana and former Apostolic Nuncius to these United States. Archbishop Vigano has issued an 11-page testimony about the corruption and the present crisis in the church. We are going to hear this testimony in this podcast. It is with real sorrow that I bring you this podcast today. It is with sorrow that I read the testimony of the former nuncius to this country. However, as soldiers return with sorrow to the front, so too do I now in reading this aloud. I read it aloud so that more of you can access the, frankly, quite horrifying information uh, from this impeccable witness to the truth. Archbishop Vigano was in, a, in pri- privileged positions. He knew and knows what was and is going on, and he brings it to the light of day. And so, uh, to continue with the image, as a uh, sorrowing soldier hefting up my shield and sword, I return to the front, and I also, however, as soldiers will, have a sense of eagerness, not from any happiness at the coming downfall of many of the people implicated in Archbishop Vigano's report, but from a sense that a victory for God and the Church is near. And so I will read Archbishop Vigano's testimony. I will do some translating of phrases along the way uh, that occur in other languages in the text, I will indicate quotations so that you can know when he's talking or someone else is talking. Uh, Throughout, uh, Archbishop Vigano emphasized passages with underscore and bold. Um, I will try to do that a bit with vocal emphases. Uh, You can see the text for yourself. It is posted online in its entirety, and I've provided the link. Uh, Otherwise, Go to the story by Edward Penton, who is the best working Vaticanista today, at uh, the National Catholic Register for 25 August 2018. Now, among the things that you should listen for is how Archbishop Vigano shows the network of people who knew all about what was going on. Listen also to what uh, Benedict tried to do. Listen to how uh, Vigano explains the machinations of McCarrick once uh, 
Benedict was out of the way, and McCarrick was off the leash. My God, it's disgusting. And then, alas, listen to what Vigano says about Pope Francis. Also, uh, listen for Vigano's explanation of the role of homosexuality and the network of homosexuals and their protectors, including people in the very loftiest places of power. And listen to what he, he says about a current, a current, as Vigano calls it, of a homosexual current that reaches also into the Domus Sancti Marte, where the Pope lives. Um, he's going to mention Monsignor Rica along the way, the guy about whom Francis, in an airplane interview, said, Who am I to judge? After it was revealed that Rica was in a homosexual relationship uh, while working in the Nunziature in Uruguay, and then, of course, he got you know, promoted and moved, moved along. Uh, I knew Rica from my time in Rome, and he was seriously creepy. Um, listen also to what he says about the deviant wing of the Jesuits. Uh, listen to how um, bishops' appointments were engineered and the role that uh, McCarrick had and Whirl had and Maradia, Rodriguez Maradiaga and so forth, uh, the roles that they, ex that, they, that they exercised. Finally, uh, Archbishop Vigano calls for everybody who was in on this whole thing to resign, uh, including Pope Francis. So, now, here is the testimony by His Excellency Carlo Maria Vigano, who was the Apostolic Nuncio in these United States. Testimony by His Excellency Carlo Maria Vigano, titular Archbishop of Ulpiana, Apostolic Nuncio. In this tragic moment for the Church in various parts of the world, the United States, Chile, Honduras, Australia, etc., bishops have a very grave responsibility. I am thinking in particular of the United States of America, where I was sent as Apostolic Nuncio by Pope Benedict the Sixteenth on October nineteenth, two thousand eleven, the memorial feast of the first North American martyrs. The bishops of the United States are called, and I with them, to follow the example of these first martyrs who brought the gospel to the lands of America, to be credible witnesses of the immeasurable love of Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Bishops and priests, abusing their authority, have committed horrendous crimes to the detriment of their faithful, minors, innocent victims, and young men eager to offer their lives to the church, or, by their silence, have not prevented that such crimes continue to be perpetrated. To restore the beauty of holiness to the face of the bride of Christ, which is terribly disfigured by so many abominable crimes, and if we truly want to free the church from the fetid swamp into which she has fallen, we must have the courage to tear down the culture of secrecy and publicly confess the truths we have kept hidden. We must tear down the conspiracy of silence with 
which the bishops and priests have protected themselves at the expense of their faithful, a conspiracy of silence that in the eyes of the world risks making the church look like a sect, a conspiracy of silence not so dissimilar from the one that prevails in the mafia. Whatever you have said in the dark shall be proclaimed from the housetops. Luke 12, verse 3. I had always believed and hoped that the hierarchy of the church could find within itself the spiritual resources and strength to tell the whole truth, to amend and to renew itself. That is why, even though I had repeatedly been asked to do so, I always avoided making statements to the media, even when it would have been my right to do so, in order to defend myself against the calumnies published about me, even by high-ranking prelates of the Roman Curia. But now that the corruption has reached the very top of the church's hierarchy, my conscience dictates that I reveal those truths regarding the heart-breaking case of the Archbishop Emeritus of Washington, D.C., Theodore McCarrick, which I came to know in the course of the duties entrusted to me by St. John Paul II as delegate for pontifical representations from 1998 to 2009, and by Pope Benedict XVI, as Apostolic Nuncio to the United States of America, from October 19, 2011, until the end of May 2016. As Delegate for Pontifical Representations in the Secretariat of State, my responsibilities were not limited to the Apostolic Nunciatures, but also included the staff of the Roman Curia, hires, promotions, informational processes on candidates to the Episcopate, etc., and the examination of delicate cases, including those regarding cardinals and bishops, that were entrusted to the delegate by the Cardinal Secretary of State or by the substitute of the Secretary of State. To dispel suspicions insinuated in several recent articles, I will immediately say that the apostolic nuncios in the United States, Gabriel Montalvo and Pietro Sambi, both prematurely deceased, did not fail to inform the Holy See immediately, as soon as they learned of Archbishop McCarrick's gravely immoral behavior with seminarians and priests. Indeed, according to what Nuncio Pietro Sambi wrote, Father Boniface Ramsey, O.P.'s letter, dated November 22, 2000, was written at the request of the late Nuncio Montalvo. In the letter, Father Ramsey, who had been a professor at the diocesan seminary in Newark from the end of the 80s until 1996, affirms that there was a recurring rumor in the seminary that the archbishop shared his bed with seminarians, inviting five at a time to spend the weekend with him at his beach house. And he added that he knew a certain number of seminarians, some of whom were later ordained priests for the Archdiocese of Newark, who had been invited to this beach house and had shared a bed with the archbishop. The office that I held at the time was not informed of any measure taken by the Holy See after those charges were brought by Nuncio Montalvo at the end of 2000, when Cardinal Angelo Sodano was Secretary of State. Likewise, Nuncio Sambi transmitted to the Cardinal Secretary of State, Tarcisio Bertone, an indictment memorandum against McCarrick by the priest Gregory Littleton of the Diocese of Charlotte, 
who was reduced to the lay state for a violation of minors, together with two documents from the same Littleton, in which he recounted his tragic story of sexual abuse by the then Archbishop of Newark and several other priests and seminarians. The nuncio added that Littleton had already forwarded his memorandum to about twenty people, including civil and ecclesiastical judicial authorities, police and lawyers, in 2006, and that it was therefore very likely that the news would soon be made public. He therefore called for a prompt intervention by the Holy See. Writing up a memo, the footnote, all memos, letters, and other documentation mentioned here are available at the Secretariat of State of the Holy See or at the Apostolic Nunciature in Washington, D.C. In writing up a memo, footnote, all the memos, letters, and other documentation mentioned here are available at the Secretariat of State of the Holy See or at the Apostolic Nunciature in Washington, D.C. In writing up a memo on these documents that were entrusted to me as Delegate for Pontifical Representations, on December 6, 2006, I wrote to my superiors, Cardinal Tarcisio Bertone and the substitute, Leonardo Sandri, that the facts attributed to McCarrick by Littleton were of such gravity and vileness as to provoke bewilderment, a sense of disgust, deep sorrow, and bitterness in the reader, and that they constituted the crimes of seducing, requesting depraved acts of seminarians and priests, repeatedly and simultaneously with several people, derision of a young seminarian who tried to resist the archbishop's seductions in the presence of two other priests, absolution of the accomplices in these depraved acts, sacrilegious celebration of the Eucharist with the same priests after committing such acts. In my memo, which I delivered on that same December 6, 2006, to my direct superior, the substitute Leonardo Sandri, I proposed the following considerations and course of action to my superiors. Bullet point one. Given that it seemed a new scandal of particular gravity as it regarded a cardinal was going to be added to the many scandals for the Church in the United States. Bullet point two and that since this matter had to do with a cardinal, according to Canon 1405, section 1, number 2, Ipsius Romani Pontificis Dum Taxat Iusses Judicandi, the Roman pontiff alone is the one to whom judging is entrusted. Bullet point 3. I propose that an exemplary measure be taken against the cardinal that could have a medicinal function, to prevent future abuses against innocent victims and alleviate the very serious scandal for the faithful, who, despite everything, continued to love and believe in the Church. I added that it would be salutary if, for once, ecclesiastical authority would intervene before the civil authorities and, if possible, before the scandal had broken out in the press. This could have restored some dignity to a church so sorely tried and humiliated by so many abominable acts on the part of some pastors. If this were done, the civil authority would no longer have to judge a cardinal, but a pastor with whom the church had already taken appropriate measures to prevent the cardinal from abusing his authority and continuing to destroy innocent victims. My memo of December 6, 2006, 
was kept by my superiors, and was never returned to me with any actual decision by the superiors on this matter. Subsequently, around April 21 to 23, 2008, the Statement for Pope Benedict XVI about the Pattern of Sexual Abuse Crisis in the United States by Richard Seip was published on the Internet at richardseip.com. On April 24, it was passed on by the Prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, Cardinal William Laveda, to the Cardinal Secretary of State, Tarcisio Bertone. It was delivered to me one month later, on May 24, 2008. The following day, I delivered a new memo to the new substitute, Fernando Filoni, which included my previous one of December 6, 2006. In it, I summarized Richard Seip's document, which ended with this respectful and heartfelt appeal to Pope Benedict XVI. Quote, I approach your holiness with due reverence, but with the same intensity that motivated Peter Damien to lay out before your predecessor, Pope Leo IX, a description of the condition of the clergy during his time. The problems he spoke of are similar, and as great now in the United States as they were then in Rome. If your holiness requests, I will personally submit to you documentation of that about which I have spoken. Close quote. I ended my memo by repeating to my superiors that I thought it was necessary to intervene as soon as possible by removing the cardinal's hat from Cardinal McCarrick, and that he should be subjected to the sanctions established by the Code of Canon Law, which also provide for reduction to the lay state. This second memo of mine was also never returned to the personnel office, and I was greatly dismayed at my superiors for the inconceivable absence of any measure against the Cardinal, and for the continuing lack of any communication with me since my first memo in December 2006. But I finally learned with certainty, through Cardinal Giovanni Battista Re, then Prefect for the Congregation for Bishops, that Richard Seip's courageous and meritorious statement had had the desired result. Pope Benedict had imposed on Cardinal McCarrick sanctions similar to those now imposed on him by Pope Francis. The Cardinal was to leave the seminary where he was living, he was forbidden to celebrate Mass in public, to participate in public meetings, to give lectures, to travel, with the obligation of dedicating himself to a life of prayer and penance. I do not know when Pope Benedict took these measures against McCarrick, whether in 2009 or 2010, because in the meantime I had been transferred to the governorate of Vatican City State, just as I do not know who was responsible for this incredible delay. I certainly do not believe it was Pope Benedict, who as cardinal had repeatedly denounced the corruption present in the church, and in the first months of his pontificate, had already taken a firm stand against the admission into seminary of young men with deep homosexual tendencies. I believe it was due to the Pope's first collaborator at the time, Cardinal Tarcisio Bertone, who notoriously favored promoting homosexuals into positions of responsibility, and was accustomed to managing the information he thought appropriate to convey to the Pope. In any case, 
What is certain is that Pope Benedict imposed the above canonical sanctions on McCarrick, and that they were communicated to him by the apostolic nuncio to the United States, Pietro Sambi. Monsignor Jean-Francois Lanthomme, then first counselor of the nunciature in Washington, and chargé d'affaires ad interim, after the unexpected death of Nuncio Sambi in Baltimore, told me when I arrived in Washington, and he is ready to testify to it, about a stormy conversation lasting over an hour that Nuncio Sambi had with Cardinal McCarrick, whom he had summoned to the nunciature. Monsignor Lanthomme told me that, quote, the nuncio's voice could be heard all the way out in the corridor, close quote. Pope Benedict's same dispositions were then also communicated to me by the new prefect of the Congregation for Bishops, Cardinal Mark Wollett, in November 2011, in a conversation before my departure for Washington, and were included among the instructions of the same congregation to the new nuncio. In turn, I repeated them to Cardinal McCarrick at my first meeting with him at the nunciature. The cardinal, muttering in a barely comprehensible way, admitted that he had perhaps made the mistake of sleeping in the same bed with some seminarians at his beach house, but he said this as if it had no importance. The faithful insistently wonder how it was possible for him to be appointed to Washington and as cardinal, and they have every right to know who knew and who covered up his grave misdeeds. It is therefore my duty to reveal what I know about this, beginning with the Roman Curia. Cardinal Angelo Sodano was Secretary of State until September 2006. All information was communicated to him. In November 2000, Nuncio Montalvo sent him his report, passing on to him the aforementioned letter from Father Boniface Ramsey, in which he denounced the serious abuses committed by McCarrick. It is known that Sodano tried to cover up the Father Maciel scandal to the end. He even removed the nuncio in Mexico City, Justo Muyar, who refused to be an accomplice in his scheme to cover Maciel, and in his place appointed Sandri, then nuncio to Venezuela, who was willing to collaborate in the cover-up. Sodano even went so far as to issue a statement to the Vatican Press Office, in which a falsehood was affirmed, that is, that Pope Benedict had decided that the Maciel case should be considered closed. Benedict reacted, despite Sodano's strenuous defense, and Maciel was found guilty and irrevocably condemned. Was McCarrick's appointment to Washington and as Cardinal the work of Sodano when John Paul II was already very ill? We are not given to know. However, it is legitimate to think so, but I do not think he was the only one responsible for this. McCarrick frequently went to Rome and made friends everywhere at all levels of the Curia. If Sodano had protected Maciel, as seems certain, there is no reason why he wouldn't have done so for McCarrick, who, according to many, had the financial means to influence decisions. His nomination to Washington was opposed by then-prefect of the Congregation for Bishops, Cardinal Giovanni Battista Re. 
At the Nunciature in Washington, there is a note written in his hand in which Cardinal Ray disassociates himself from the appointment and states that McCarrick was 14th on the list for Washington. Nuncio Sambi's report, with all the attachments, was sent to Cardinal Tarcisio Bertone as Secretary of State. My two above-mentioned memos of December 6, 2006 and May 25, 2008 were also presumably handed over to him by the substitute. As already mentioned, the Cardinal had no difficulty in insistently presenting for the Episcopate candidates known to be active homosexuals. I cite only the well-known case of Vincenzo de Mauro, who was appointed Archbishop Bishop of Vigevano, and later removed because he was undermining his seminarians, and infiltering and manipulating the information he conveyed to Pope Benedict. Cardinal Pietro Parolin, the current Secretary of State, was also complicit in covering up the misdeeds of McCarrick, who had, after the election of Pope Francis, boasted openly of his travels and missions to various continents. In April 2014, the Washington Times had a front-page report on McCarrick's trip to the Central African Republic, and on behalf of the State Department, no less. As nuncio to Washington, I wrote to Cardinal Parolin, asking him if the sanctions imposed on McCarrick by Pope Benedict were still valid. Ça va sans dire. It goes without saying that my letter never received any reply. The same can be said for Cardinal William Leveda, former prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, for Cardinals Mark Ouellette, prefect of the Congregation for Bishops, Lorenzo Baldisseri, former secretary of the same Congregation for Bishops, and Archbishop Ilson de Jesus Montanari, current secretary of the same Congregation. They were all aware by reason of their office of the sanctions imposed by Pope Benedict on McCarrick. Cardinals Leonardo Sandri, Fernando Filoni, and Angelo Becciu, as substitutes of the Secretary of State, knew in every detail the situation regarding Cardinal McCarrick. Nor could Cardinals Giovanni Laiolo and Dominique Mamberti have failed to know. As Secretaries for Relations with States, they participated several times a week in collegial meetings with the Secretary of State. As far as the Roman Curia is concerned, for the moment I will stop here. Even if the names of other prelates in the Vatican are well known, even some very close to Pope Francis, such as Cardinal Francesco Coco Palmerio and Archbishop Vincenzo Paglia, who belong to the homosexual current in favor of subverting Catholic doctrine on homosexuality, a current already denounced in 1986 by Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, then Prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, in the Letter to the Bishops of the Catholic Church on the Pastoral Care of Homosexual Persons. Cardinals Edwin Frederick O'Brien and Renato Raffaele Martino also belong to the same current, albeit with a different ideology. Others belonging to this current even reside at the Domus Sancte Marte. Now to the United States. Obviously, the first to have been informed of the measures taken by Pope Benedict was McCarrick's successor in Washington, D.C., Cardinal Donald Wuerl, 
whose situation is now completely compromised by the recent revelations regarding his behavior as Bishop of Pittsburgh. It is absolutely unthinkable that Nuncio Sambi, who was an extremely responsible person, loyal, direct, and explicit in his way of being, a true son of Romagna, did not speak to him about it. In any case, I myself brought up the subject with Cardinal Whirl on several occasions, and I certainly didn't need to go into detail, because it was immediately clear to me that he was fully aware of it. I also remember in particular the fact that I had to draw his attention to it, because I realized that in an archdiocesan publication, on the back cover in color, there was an announcement inviting young men who thought they had a vocation to the priesthood to a meeting with Cardinal McCarrick. I immediately phoned Cardinal Whirl, who expressed his surprise to me, telling me that he knew nothing about that announcement and that he would cancel it. If, as he now continues to state, he knew nothing of the abuses committed by McCarrick and the measures taken by Pope Benedict, how can his answer be explained? His recent statements that he knew nothing about it, even though at first he cunningly referred to compensation for the two victims, are absolutely laughable. The cardinal lies shamelessly and prevails upon his chancellor, Monsignor Antonicelli, to lie as well. Cardinal Whirl also clearly lied on another occasion. Following a morally unacceptable event authorized by the academic authorities of Georgetown University, I brought it to the attention of its president, Dr. John DeJoya, sending him two subsequent letters. Before forwarding them to the addressee, so as to handle things properly, I personally gave a copy of them to the cardinal with an accompanying letter I had written. The cardinal told me that he knew nothing about it. However, he failed to acknowledge receipt of my two letters, contrary to what he customarily did. I subsequently learned that the event at Georgetown had taken place for seven years, but the Cardinal knew nothing about it. Cardinal Whirl, well aware of the continuous abuses committed by Cardinal McCarrick and of the sanctions imposed on him by Pope Benedict, transgressing the Pope's order, also allowed him to reside at a seminary in Washington, D.C. In doing so, he put other seminarians at risk. Bishop Paul Butkowski, Emeritus of Metuchen, and Archbishop John Myers, Emeritus of Newark, covered up the abuses committed by McCarrick in their respective dioceses and compensated two of his victims. They cannot deny it, and they must be interrogated in order to reveal every circumstance and all responsibility regarding this matter. Cardinal Kevin Farrell, who was recently interviewed by the media, also said that he didn't have the slightest idea about the abuses committed by McCarrick. Given his tenure in Washington, Dallas, and now Rome, I think no one can honestly believe him. I don't know if he was ever asked if he knew about Maciel's crimes. If he were to deny this, would anyone believe him, given that he occupied positions of responsibility as a member of the Legionaries of Christ? Regarding Cardinal Sean O'Malley, I would simply say that his latest statements on the McCarrick case are disconcerting and have totally obscured his transparency and credibility. 
My conscience requires me also to reveal facts that I have experienced personally concerning Pope Francis that have dramatic significance, which, as bishop, sharing the collegial responsibility of all the bishops for the universal church, do not allow me to remain silent, and that I state here, ready to reaffirm them under oath by calling on God as my witness. In the last months of his pontificate, Pope Benedict XVI had convened a meeting of all the apostolic nuncios in Rome, as Paul VI and St. John Paul II had done on several occasions. The date set for the audience with the Pope was Friday, June 21, 2013. Pope Francis kept this commitment made by his predecessor. Of course, I also came to Rome from Washington. It was my first meeting with the new Pope, elected only three months prior, after the resignation of Pope Benedict. On the morning of Thursday, June 20, 2013, I went to the Domus Sancte Marte to join my colleagues who were staying there. As soon as I entered the hall, I met Cardinal McCarrick, who wore the red-trimmed cassock. I greeted him respectfully, as I had always done. He immediately said to me, in a tone somewhere between ambiguous and triumphant, quote, The Pope received me yesterday. Tomorrow I'm going to China. Close quote. At the time I knew nothing of his long friendship with Cardinal Bergoglio and of the important part he had played in his recent election, as McCarrick himself would later reveal in a lecture at Villanova University and in an interview with the National Catholic Reporter. Nor had I ever thought of the fact that he had participated in the preliminary meetings of the recent conclave, and of the role that he had been able to have as a cardinal elector in the 2005 conclave. Therefore, I did not immediately grasp the meaning of the encrypted message that McCarrick had communicated to me, but that would become clear to me in the days immediately following. The next day, the audience with Pope Francis took place. After his address, which was partly read and partly delivered off the cuff, the Pope wished to greet all the nuncios one by one. In single file, I remember that I was among the last. When it was my turn, I just had time to say to him, I am the nuncio to the United States. He immediately assailed me with a tone of reproach, using these words, quote, the bishops in the United States must not be ideologized. They must be shepherds, close quote. Of course, I was not in a position to ask for explanations about the meaning of his words and the aggressive way in which he had upbraided me. I had in my hand a book in Portuguese that Cardinal O'Malley had sent me for the Pope a few days earlier, telling me, quote, so he could go over his Portuguese before going to Rio for World Youth Day, close quote. I handed it to him immediately, and so freed myself from that extremely disconcerting and embarrassing situation. At the end of the audience, the Pope announced, quote, Those of you who are still in Rome next Sunday are invited to concelebrate with me at the Domus Sancte Marte, close quote. I naturally thought of staying on to clarify as soon as possible what the Pope intended to tell me. On Sunday, June 23, before the concelebration with the Pope, I asked Monsignor Rica, who as the person in charge of the house 
helped us put on the vestments, if he could ask the Pope if he could receive me some time in the following week. How could I have returned to Washington without having clarified what the Pope wanted of me? At the end of Mass, while the Pope was greeting a few lay people present, Monsignor Fabian Pedacchio, his Argentine secretary, came to me and said, quote, The Pope told me to ask if you are free now. Close quote. Naturally, I replied that I was at the Pope's disposal, and that I thanked him for receiving me immediately. The Pope took me to the first floor in his apartment and said, quote, We have forty minutes before the Angelus. Close quote. I began the conversation, asking the Pope what he intended to say to me with the words he had addressed to me when I greeted him the previous Friday. And the Pope, in a very different, friendly, almost affectionate tone, said to me, quote, Yes, the bishops in the United States must not be ideologized. They must not be right-wing like the Archbishop of Philadelphia. The Pope did not give me the name of the Archbishop. They must be shepherds, and they must not be left-wing, and he added, raising both arms, and when I say left-wing, I mean homosexual, close quote. Of course, the logic of the correlation between being left-wing and being homosexual escaped me, but I added nothing else. Immediately after, the Pope asked me, in a deceitful way, quote, what is Cardinal McCarrick like? Close quote. I answered him with complete frankness, and, if you want, with great naivete. Quote, Holy Father, I don't know if you know Cardinal McCarrick, but if you ask the congregation for bishops, there is a dossier this thick about him. He corrupted generations of seminarians and priests, and Pope Benedict ordered him to withdraw to a life of prayer and penance. Close quote. The Pope did not make the slightest comment about those very grave words of mine, and did not show any expression of surprise on his face, as if he had already known the matter for some time, and he immediately changed the subject. But then, what was the Pope's purpose in asking me that question, quote, what is Cardinal McCarrick like, close quote? He clearly wanted to find out if I was an ally of McCarrick or not. Back in Washington, everything became clear to me, thanks also to a new event that occurred only a few days after my meeting with Pope Francis. When the new bishop Mark Seitz took possession of the Diocese of El Paso on July 9, 2013, I sent the first counselor, Monsignor Jean-Francois Lantome, while I went to Dallas the same day for an international meeting on bioethics. When he got back, Monsignor Lantom told me that in El Paso he had met Cardinal McCarrick, who, taking him aside, told him almost the same words that the Pope had said to me in Rome. Quote, the bishops in the United States must not be ideologized. They must not be right-wing. They must be shepherds. Close quote. I was astounded. It was therefore clear that the words of reproach that Pope Francis had addressed to me on June 21, 2013, had been put into his mouth the day before by Cardinal McCarrick. Also, the Pope's mentioned, quote, not like the Archbishop of Philadelphia, close quote, could be traced to McCarrick. 
because there had been a strong disagreement between the two of them about the admission to communion of pro-abortion politicians. In his communication to the bishops, McCarrick had manipulated a letter of then-Cardinal Ratzinger, who prohibited giving them communion. Indeed, I knew how certain cardinals, such as Mahoney, Laveda, and Whirl, were closely linked to McCarrick. They had opposed the most recent appointments made by Pope Benedict for important posts, such as Philadelphia, Baltimore, Denver, and San Francisco. Not happy with the trap he had set for me on June 23, 2013, when he asked me about McCarrick, only a few months later, in the audience he granted me on October 10, 2013, Pope Francis set a second one for me, this time concerning a second of his protégés, Cardinal Donald Whirl. He asked me, quote, What is Cardinal Whirl like? Is he good or bad? Close quote. I replied, quote, Holy Father, I will not tell you if he is good or bad, but I will tell you two facts. Close quote. They are the ones I have already mentioned above, which concern Whirl's pastoral carelessness regarding the aberrant deviations at Georgetown University and the invitation by the Archdiocese of Washington to young aspirants to the priesthood to a meeting with McCarrick. Once again, the Pope did not show any reaction. It was also clear that from the time of Pope Francis' election, McCarrick, now free from all constraints, had felt free to travel continuously to give lectures and interviews. In a team effort with Cardinal Rodriguez Maradiaga, he had become the kingmaker for appointments in the Curia and the United States, and the most listened-to adviser in the Vatican for relations with the Obama administration. This is how one explains that, as members of the Congregation for Bishops, the Pope replaced Cardinal Burke with Whirl, and immediately appointed Supich, right after he was made a cardinal. With these appointments, the nunciature in Washington was now out of the picture in the appointment of bishops. In addition, he appointed the Brazilian Ilson de Jesus Montanari, the great friend of his private Argentine secretary, Fabian Pedacchio, as secretary of the same congregation for bishops and secretary of the College of Cardinals, promoting him in one single leap from a simple official of that department to Archbishop's secretary, something unprecedented for such an important position. The appointments of Blaise Supich to Chicago and Joseph W. Tobin to Newark were orchestrated by McCarrick, Maradiaga, and Whirl, united by a wicked pact of abuses by the first and at least of cover-up of abuses by the other two. Their names were not among those presented by the nunciature for Chicago and Newark. Regarding Supich, one cannot fail to note his ostentatious arrogance and the insolence with which he denies the evidence that is now obvious to all, that 80% of the abuses found were committed against young adults by homosexuals, who were in a relationship of authority over their victims. During the speech he gave when he took possession of the Chicago Sea, at which I was present as a representative of the Pope, Supich quipped that one certainly should not expect the new archbishop to walk on water. 
perhaps it would be enough for him to be able to remain with his feet on the ground and not try to turn reality upside down, blinded by his pro-gay ideology, as he stated in a recent interview with America magazine. Extolling his particular expertise in the matter, having been president of the Committee on Protection of Children and Young People of the USCCB, he asserted that the main problem in the crisis of sexual abuse by clergy is not homosexuality, and that affirming this is only a way of diverting attention from the real problem, which is clericalism. In support of this thesis, Supich oddly made reference to the results of research carried out at the height of the sexual abuse of minors crisis in the early 2000s, while he candidly ignored that the results of that investigation were totally denied by the subsequent independent reports by the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in 2004 and 2011, which concluded that, in cases of sexual abuse, 81% of the victims were male. In fact, Father Hans Zollner, S.J., vice-rector of the Pontifical Gregorian University, president of the Center for Child Protection, and a member of the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors, recently told the newspaper La Stampa that, quote, in most cases, it is a question of homosexual abuse, closed quote. The appointment of McElroy in San Diego was also orchestrated from above with an encrypted peremptory order to me as nuncio by Cardinal Parolin, quote, reserve the see of San Diego for McElroy, close quote. McElroy was also well aware of McCarrick's abuses, as can be seen from a letter sent to him by Richard Sipe on July 28, 2016. These characters are closely associated with individuals belonging in particular to the deviated wing of the Society of Jesus, unfortunately today a majority, which had already been a cause of serious concern to Paul VI and subsequent pontiffs. We need only consider Father Robert Drynan, S.J., who was elected four times to the House of Representatives and was a staunch supporter of abortion. Or Father Vincent O'Keefe, S.J., one of the principal promoters of the Land O'Lakes Statement of 1967, which seriously compromised the Catholic identity of universities and colleges in the United States. It should be noted that McCarrick, then president of the Catholic University of Puerto Rico, also participated in that inauspicious undertaking, which was so harmful to the formation of the consciences of American youth, closely associated as it was with the deviated wing of the Jesuits. Father James Martin, S.J., acclaimed by the people mentioned above, in particular Supich, Tobin, Farrell, and McElroy, appointed consultor of the Secretariat for Communications, well-known activist, who promotes the LGBT agenda, chosen to corrupt the young people who will soon gather in Dublin for the World Meeting of Families, is nothing but a sad recent example of that deviated wing of the Society of Jesus. Pope Francis has repeatedly asked for total transparency in the Church and for bishops and faithful to act with paresia. The faithful throughout the world also demand this of him, in an exemplary manner. He must honestly state 
when he first learned about the crimes committed by McCarrick, who abused his authority with seminarians and priests. In any case, the Pope learned about it from me on June 23, 2013, and continued to cover up for him. He did not take into account the sanctions that Pope Benedict had imposed on him, and made him his trusted counselor, along with Maradiaga. The latter, Maradiaga, is so confident of the Pope's protection that he can dismiss as gossip the heartfelt appeals of dozens of his seminarians, who found the courage to write to him after one of them tried to commit suicide over homosexual abuse in the seminary. By now, the faithful have well understood Maradiaga's strategy, insult the victims to save himself, lie to the bitter end to cover up a chasm of abuses of power, of mismanagement in the administration of church property, and of financial disasters even against close friends, as in the case of the ambassador of Honduras, Alejandro Valladares, former dean of the diplomatic corps to the Holy See. In the case of the former auxiliary bishop, Juan José Pineda, after the article published in the Italian weekly L'Espresso last February, Maradiaga stated in the newspaper Avenire, quote, It was my auxiliary bishop Pineda who asked for the visitation, so as to clear his name after being subjected to much slander. Close quote. Now, regarding Pineda, the only thing that has been made public is that his resignation has simply been accepted thus making any possible responsibility of his and Mara Diaga vanish into nowhere. In the name of the transparency so hailed by the Pope, the report that the visitator, Argentine Bishop Alcides Casareto, delivered more than a year ago, only and directly to the Pope, must be made public. Finally, the recent appointment as substitute of Archbishop Edgar Peña Parra is also connected with Honduras, that is, with Maradiaga. From 2003 to 2007, Peña Parra worked as counselor at the Tegucigalpa Nunciature. As delegate for pontifical representations, I received worrisome information about him. In Honduras, a scandal as huge as the one in Chile is about to be repeated. The Pope defends his man, Cardinal Rodriguez Maradiaga, to the bitter end, as he had done in Chile with Bishop Juan de la Cruz Parros, whom he himself had appointed Bishop of Orsorno against the advice of the Chilean bishops. First, he insulted the abuse victims. Then, only when he was forced by the media and a revolt by the Chilean victims and faithful, did he recognize his error and apologize while stating that he had been misinformed, causing a disastrous situation for the church in Chile, but continuing to protect the two Chilean cardinals, Erazuriz and Edzati. Even in the tragic affair of McCarrick, Pope Francis' behavior was no different. He knew from at least June 23, 2013, that McCarrick was a serial predator. Although he knew that he was a corrupt man, he covered for him to the bitter end. Indeed, he made McCarrick's advice his own, which was certainly not inspired by sound intentions and for love of the church. It was only when he was forced by the report of the abuse of a minor 
again on the basis of media attention, that he took action regarding to McCarrick to save his image in the media. Now, in the United States, a chorus of voices is rising, especially from the lay faithful, and has recently been joined by several bishops and priests, asking that all those who, by their silence, covered up McCarrick's criminal behavior, or who used him to advance their career or promote their intentions, ambitions, and power in the church, should resign. But this will not be enough to heal the situation of extremely grave immoral behavior by the clergy, bishops, and priests. A time of conversion and penance must be proclaimed. The virtue of chastity must be recovered in the clergy and in seminaries. Corruption in the misuse of the church's resources and of the offerings of the faithful must be fought against. The seriousness of homosexual behavior must be denounced. The homosexual networks present in the church must be eradicated, as Janet Smith, professor of moral theology at the Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit, recently wrote, quote, The problem of clergy abuse, she wrote, cannot be resolved simply by the resignation of some bishops, and even less so by bureaucratic directives. The deeper problem lies in homosexual networks within the clergy, which must be eradicated. These homosexual networks, which are now widespread in many dioceses, seminaries, religious orders, etc., act with the concealment of secrecy and lies, with the power of octopus tentacles, and strangle innocent victims and priestly vocations, and are strangling the entire church. I implore everyone, especially bishops, to speak up in order to defeat this conspiracy of silence that is so widespread, and to report the cases of abuse they know about to the media and civil authorities. Let us heed the most powerful message that St. John Paul II left us as an inheritance. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. In his 2008 homily on the Feast of the Epiphany, Pope Benedict reminded us that the Father's plan of salvation had been fully revealed and realized in the mystery of Christ's death and resurrection, but it needs to be welcomed in human history which is always a history of fidelity on God's part, and unfortunately also of infidelity on the part of us men. The church, the depository of the blessing of the new covenant, signed in the blood of the Lamb, is holy, but made up of sinners. As St. Ambrose wrote, the church is immaculata ex maculatis, spotless from the stained. She is holy and spotless, even though, in her earthly journey, she is made up of men stained with sin. I want to recall this indefectible truth of the Church's holiness to the many people who have been so deeply scandalized by the abominable and sacrilegious behavior of the former Archbishop of Washington, Theodore McCarrick, by the grave, disconcerting, and sinful conduct of Pope Francis, and by the conspiracy of silence of so many pastors, who are tempted to abandon the church, disfigured by so many ignominies. At the Angelus on Sunday, August 12, 2018, Pope Francis said these words, quote, Everyone is guilty for the good he could have done and did not do. 
If we do not oppose evil, we tacitly feed it. We need to intervene where evil is spreading, for evil spreads where daring Christians who oppose evil with good are lacking. Close quote. If this is rightly to be considered a serious moral responsibility for every believer, how much graver is it for the church's supreme pastor, who in the case of McCarrick not only did not oppose evil, but associated himself in doing evil with someone he knew to be deeply corrupt. He followed the advice of someone he knew well to be a pervert, thus multiplying exponentially with his supreme authority the evil done by McCarrick, and how many other evil pastors is Francis still continuing to prop up in their active destruction of the church. Francis is abdicating the mandate which Christ gave to Peter to confirm the brethren. Indeed, by his action, he has divided them, led them into error, and encouraged the wolves to continue to tear apart the sheep of Christ's flock. In this extremely dramatic moment for the universal church, he must acknowledge his mistakes, and, in keeping with the proclaimed principle of zero tolerance, Pope Francis must be the first to set a good example for cardinals and bishops who covered up McCarrick's abuses and resign along with all of them. Even in dismay and sadness over the enormity of what is happening, let us not lose hope. We well know that the great majority of our pastors live their priestly vocation with fidelity and dedication. It is in moments of great trial that the Lord's grace is revealed in abundance and makes his limitless mercy available to all. But it is granted only to those who are truly repentant and sincerely propose to amend their lives. This is a favorable time for the church to confess her sins, to convert, and to do penance. Let us all pray for the church and for the Pope. Let us remember how many times he has asked us to pray for him. Let us all renew faith in the church our mother. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Christ will never abandon his church. He generated her in his blood and continually revives her with his spirit. Mary, mother of the church, pray for us. Mary, virgin and queen, Mother of the King of Glory, pray for us. Rome, August 22nd, 2018. Queenship of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Official translation by Diane Montagna. was Archbishop Vigano's testimony about what he knows is going on. It was pretty awful to read. I'm sure it was awful to listen to. Um, it's kind of like an autopsy, you know. Autopsies are really awful, but they are fascinating. Uh, let's just say that after all my years in Rome, I knew quite a few of those names, and I knew pretty much what they were up to. And uh, I also 
from what I know about Vigano, um, he's an absolutely reliable source. Now, I suppose what's going to happen now is that the enemy, who has been seriously wounded by this thing, is going to lash out and flail around, and that his human agents in the church will react sharply to this, and they will begin to use raw power to smash and crush and, and strike out uh, to protect their positions. I think the devil has a very strong role in the lives of a lot of the people whose names were mentioned. If they are not possessed, they are obsessed or oppressed, I think. It's got to be that way. Certain kinds of sins attract the demons who attach themselves to the people and to the, who commit them into the places where they were committed as well. I think we need a, a lot more use of the uh, third chapter of the title concerning exorcisms from the Roman ritual. Uh, I think I strongly suspect that the devil will attack Ed Penton and Diane Montagna, who translated the text, certainly Vigano himself, probably me too, for reading this aloud in order that more people can can hear what's going on. Uh, and anybody else who stands on side with Vigano. We're just going to have to see what happens. But things have to get uglier before they can get better. You know, to rescue someone from a swamp, to use Vigano's image in his testimony, you have to go into the swamp too, and you have to deal with the muck and the alligators and the slime. So I would ask you, dear listener, please to say some prayers for the people I've mentioned uh, Ed Penton, Diane Montagna, uh, Archbishop Vigano, and also for me as well, as I, of course, will pray for you.